If you will, please take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Titus. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to 16. And since we've all been probably doing a little too much eating, uh, why not use food as an introduction for this sermon? So those of you who, who know my wife know that she is a rather good cook. And if you have any questions about that, they're not here right now, but just ask the Luckadoo boys. Uh, Dalton has even told me before that if Carla cuts up a piece of celery, that's the best celery in the world. So don't you dare argue with them about that. Well, one of the, one of the unique recipes that my wife likes to make is a coconut cake. Uh, this cake requires all kinds of unique, what I call culinary black magic, because I have no idea how to even begin to describe making it. Uh, it requires a real coconut, and even the cracking of that thing is, is a chore. Uh, it has to be soaked in the coconut milk. The cake does, I think. Uh, and I know I'm getting lots of these things wrong, but uh, Carla will correct me, I'm sure. Now, if you were at, to ask Carla about this cake, Carla would never say that this is Carla's cake. This is Carla's nanny's cake. This is not Carla's. And this is how it will be referred to by Carla for all of her life. This will never be Carla's coconut cake. It is always her nanny's coconut cake. And this is because Carla is a steward of the cake. She's not the owner. She's the steward of the cake. The technique is not hers. Honestly, the technique's probably not even nanny's. It's probably her mother's. Uh, but Carla does not take credit for any of the ingredients or the ingenious mixture. Uh, this is Nanny's cake, and Carla's job is to get the cake as close to Nanny's cake as she possibly can. She doesn't add to it or change it. The goal is to create Nanny's cake. Carla has a good attitude, and she is a good steward of her Nanny's cooking. Uh, she preserves the recipe. She doesn't take ownership of it. And in her nanny's absence, Carla is kind of like the authority. Uh, she's not the only authority. There's other authorities in her family. But she's kind of the authority over her nanny's cooking because her nanny has passed away now. Uh, but she's preserving the recipes for the honor of the one that she loves dearly, her nanny. Well, in our text today, Paul is going to talk about being a steward of something much greater than a recipe He's going to talk about being a steward of the church of our beloved Jesus Christ. And much like the stewardship given to Carla for her nanny's cooking, God has given a stewardship to those who oversee the church. Not an ownership, but a stewardship. So let's look at the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 5 to 16. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those 
who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. As Paul is is passing on the torch of leadership to Titus, he wants Titus to do something specific. He wants him to begin to establish structure and order in the church. And in Paul's mind, you can't have order if you don't have leadership. First, Titus must appoint elders in the churches in Crete. Verse 7 says, An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now you can see why I named this sermon God's stewards, because Paul uses that word steward uh, in verse 7. The word for steward is basically the word for a house manager. Uh, this is the word, if you're familiar with, with Jesus' parables, that's the word that Jesus uses to describe the man who is left to manage the house while his master is away doing some business. And he is in charge of the master's house temporarily uh, while the master is gone. And this is precisely the concept of an elder or an overseer. He is a steward. He's a manager of a house that does not belong to him. And he is to do it faithfully until his Lord and Master Jesus Christ returns. Paul gives Titus a list of qualifications for these stewards. And the first of the two requirements talk about him being a good family steward. And if you have the outlines on the back, the first point is that this person is a family steward. In verse 6, Paul says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. God's stewards must be faithful to their families. And first in priority to their family is they must have a good relationship with their wife. Paul says he must be the husband of one wife, which in my opinion is not a great translation in the ESV. Uh, Literally, it could be rendered a man of one woman. Some have said it should be translated a one-woman man. I've even heard a very modern translation uh, say it should be called a one-woman kind of a guy. Uh, Now, I don't think here, uh, in the way this is translated, the husband of one wife, I don't think Paul is trying to disqualify anyone who's been divorced and remarried or anyone who has been widowed and remarried The emphasis is upon the man's current relationship with his wife. Is his commitment to one woman his wife? Uh, Tim Chester, a commentator, says, We are to look for men 
with a strong marriage, who are committed to their wife, who care for their wife, and who have no history of flirting with other women. So you don't want a man who's married but flirts with women. So the first thing is the steward should be above reproach in his marriage, but Paul also says that he needs to be a good steward towards his children as well. Uh, once again, I don't like the ESV translation here. I'm, uh, I'm coming down hard on the ref- new Reformed uh, translation. Uh, it says his children are believers. Actually, I like the KJV better here, the King James Version. It says, having faithful children. You see, God is the one who elects. Even in chapter 1, Paul talks about being a servant of the elect. And Parents don't have any direct control over whether their children are regenerate, whether they are the elect. Uh, But even having said that, Paul is saying it should be evident that a father is not neglecting his children so much that they are not showing some evidence of understanding the gospel and understanding uh, how to go about being among the people of God. Uh, This is also not talking about older children outside of the family. Uh, sometimes children get older, they question the faith, sometimes they even walk away. Uh, and the reason for this, in my opinion, is the having word is very important. I don't like that the ESV does away with the having word. The King James says, having faithful, faithful children, the ESV just says, uh, his children must be believers. That having word in the Greek, it's, it's the word echo, I believe. That word... Uh, It is trying to describe authority. It's the same word that a master would use if he had servants. You have servants, you have authority over them. So this is children that that the steward has authority over. They are in his home, and and he has authority over them in the household. So these these are not adult children. These are young children who were in the household. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, 4 to 5, Paul lists these qualifications to Timothy in that passage, and this is the parallel. Titus and Timothy are are kind of parallels. And Timothy is in the church in Ephesus, and Titus is in the churches on the island of Crete. And this is how Paul expresses this qualification to those who were in Ephesus. He says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, How will he care for God's church? So you see there, in Timothy, it's expressed as submissive children. So I don't believe that Paul wants the elders' children in Ephesus to be submissive, but he wants the elders elders to know in Crete that their children are the elect. That just doesn't line up very well. So I think this should be translated as faithful children. These children are faithful children. And Paul goes on to describe what he means by faithful when he says that they should not be open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. Anyone who is called to lead in the church cannot neglect their children to the point that while they are under their authority in their home that they are open to some some terrible, scandalous charge of a sin. Uh, Basically, bottom line, I think what Paul's saying here is that God's stewards cannot be absent fathers. They should not be absent from the lives of their children. 
And since it's so important to God that, that church leaders not neglect their families, what is the implied duty of the church towards their leaders here? Well, I think it is that we should not require them to be so busy that they neglect their families. We don't want their families falling by the wayside. Now, we don't want lazy elders. We don't want do-nothing elders and deacons. I'm going to lump the deacons in here too, even though they're not mentioned, so sorry about that, deacons. Uh, but we also have to balance this and remember that, that their first priority in God's mind is their family. He wants them to be good stewards of their family. So the father should be a good steward to his household if he wishes to be a good steward in the household of God. That's the first point. The second point is that Paul also wants this steward to be a good self-steward. He wants him to steward himself. He wants him to have discipline and self-control. In verses 7 to 8, Paul says, An overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Above reproach is simply the qualification required of those who are leaders in the church. It's kind of like the blanket qualification. Above reproach encapsulates everything that Paul is saying. Some of your translations might say that he needs to be blameless. Now, of course, blameless doesn't mean that they're sinless or that they're perfect. It's actually a legal term. And the legal term means that uh, the one who wants to lead in the church should not be open to some kind of charge uh, where it's obvious that ongoing in their life there's some sinful pattern that everyone recognizes. And I would say that Paul leaves this somewhat vague. He gives a list of what he means by above reproach, but he actually expects people like Titus and others who are appointing these leaders to have some discernment and be, be able to generally know if this man is above reproach in his life. And you can see the vagueness in some of the characteristics that Paul lists. The elder must be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and he must be disciplined. And Paul doesn't place these qualifications in any specific area of the elder's life, but just in general. These characteristics should be in the man's life in some form or fashion. He should be above reproach. Now, when he talks about the five vices back in verse 7, these are a little more specific. He must not be arrogant. He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be violent or greedy for gain. Leadership needs strong men. And anything that attracts strong men attracts strong qualities. But the weakness can, can come in when these strong qualities turn into self-seeking glory, seeking authority for self. Paul says that any man who wants to make the leadership of the church all about his dominion is disqualified. The church is not a platform for somebody who is arrogant to stroke their ego. He is not to use leadership to satisfy the idol of self. And the one specific virtue that Paul lists 
goes against all of these vices. The one specific virtue that he mentions is to be hospitable. You can't be hospitable and be arrogant and proud or a drunkard or greedy. You can't exhibit hospitality and have those characteristics. Now, as someone who has low social stamina, hospitality is definitely something I struggle with and I often, often joke to my youth group and, and tell, that I, tell them that I'm sorry that they have to have a grouchy old man for their youth pastor. Uh, but an elder can't be dismissive of people. He cannot give off a sense that he has absolutely no time for the people of God. If, some, if someone comes with a need, a spiritual need or a physical need, he should try his best to make time for that person. Because leadership is not about self. It's about serving. Now this doesn't mean that you let people monopolize your time, and there are people that will do this if you let them. Uh, you have to remember that there's a balance. You must have time for your family. And I don't think Paul's saying here, don't ever have any time for yourself. But you need to care enough about people to where the congregation considers you generally to be a hospitable person. So the steward of God must not make leadership a platform for self, but instead he should use it to show his love for the flock of God. Now, in verse 9, Paul gives a final virtue. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He must be doctrinally sound so that he can instruct God's people. He's not only a family steward, he's not only a self-steward, he's also a, a steward over God's church. And this brings us to our third point. The church steward needs to be able to instruct, discipline, and defend the household of God. Verses 10 to 14, Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the faith. In verse 5, Paul tells Titus that he wants him to put what is remaining into order. In verses 10 to 14, we see just how much disorder has descended upon the churches in Crete. Verse 10 says, there are those who are insubordinate. There are empty talkers deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, if you don't know what the circumcision party is, I believe Paul here is talking about what we refer to as the Judaizers. The whole book of Galatians is written against the Judaizers. These Jewish Christians taught that Gentiles, if they wanted to be part of the church, had to adopt all the Mosaic ceremonial laws, especially circumcision. And if you weren't circumcised, you were not part of the church. And it is a a works-based type of gospel. And Paul is, is extremely opposed to that type. It's one of the harshest letters that Paul writes is the book of Galatians. So order is needed 
because there are deceivers inside and outside the church who are upsetting whole families by their teaching. And not only are these people deceptive, it's not like they're just deceived and they're deceiving others. Paul says that they are doing this to achieve selfish gain. So not only is their theology bad, their motives are bad, their morals are bad. They are trying to to gain uh, influence and probably material things from the flock of God. So if you can remember, way back in October, I preached this first sermon in the book of Titus, and I I playfully referred to these men as the anti-elders. And that's probably not a good thing to call them, but but you can see from, from these distinguishing marks that they are the opposite of what Paul says the elders are in the first part of this section. They are insubordinate. They're deceptive. They don't hold firmly to the trustworthy word. They're arrogant. They're selfish. They're everything that an elder should not be. If you look at verses 15 to 16, this is actually Paul giving a little synopsis teaching against this circumcision party. He says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These deceivers are true legalists. They believe that the external things are what defiles a man. They believe that they can keep their hearts pure by what Jesus called the doctrine of touch not, taste not. They cleaned the outside of the cup and didn't care about the inside of the cup. But Jesus teaches us that the heart is what's impure. And those things that are outside don't affect the inside. It's the inside is where defilements come from. And this is why we need grace. This is why we need mercy. We are completely unable to work our way to God without Jesus Christ. We must be made pure by the blood of Christ, and only then can we do any works that are fit for God. Paul says their works are unfit, but only in Christ can we do works that are fit for God. Paul says that this ritualistic works righteousness heresy has to be silenced. Paul will not tolerate it. Don't even listen to them. Don't debate with them. They are to be silenced. So those who are subverting the churches... They're not going to be easy to deal with. But look at what Paul says about the actual people that that the churches are supposed to be protecting. Paul says, according to one of their own prophets, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. And Paul says, that prophet's not wrong. He's right about this. This is is an accurate characterization of Cretans. And this is why they need to be rebuked sharply. You see, in Crete, there's almost this perfect storm. There are these deceptive wolves that are lurking about the deceivers. They have a false gospel. They want to take advantage of the flock. And you add to that a mixture of undisciplined, immature Christians who could easily be turned away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says this storm needs order. It needs peace. It needs oversight. It needs shepherds. Why do we need qualified elders? Verse 10 says, 
For there are many who seek to subvert, and there are many who are susceptible to being subverted. The word for in verse 10 connects the section of the appointing of the elders to protecting the flock against the deceivers. The reason we need to appoint elders is because they need to protect the flock from these deceivers. In freedom-loving America, we are often suspicious of authority. But in the church of Jesus Christ, authority is necessary. God, God ordains civil government to protect citizens, and God ordains church government to protect his sheep. Just because bad leaders abuse their authority does not mean that God does not still institute authority. If you will, turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. In modern America, the concept of church authority, it's, it's greatly frowned upon. There are those who believe that the church is not needed. They think they can just exist, them and Jesus and their Bible. Uh, and if they do participate in church occasionally, they certainly are not accountable to anyone in the congregation or anybody in leadership. And the reason for this is that there have been many in the past, and there are many today, who overemphasize the human authorities in the church. In that I mean, they abuse their authority in that they actually, in their pride, act like they alone speak for God. They don't see themselves as stewards, they see themselves as the authority. They're not patient in their leadership, and they don't realize that they are more accountable to their master when he returns to any member of the flock who's insubordinate. It's almost as though they have forgotten the authority of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, 15 to 18 we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is God. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. All things are even held together by him. All these glorious things are said about Jesus Christ. And in the midst of all these glorious things, what does Paul say? He is the head of the church. The Lord of the universe is the head of the church. The church is important to Jesus. He loves it. He nurtures it. He's the Lord over it. He's the head over it. I'm not the head. Mike isn't the head. John isn't the head. None of the deacons are the head. Jesus is the head. We are like, if you can remember being a kid, being left alone, we are like an older sibling. It's probably only happened in the 80s. An, an older sibling who is left in charge over the younger siblings while daddy is gone. And when daddy returns, if the older sibling 
has abused that authority, they're going to get punished way more than the younger insubordinate siblings. That's basically what our leadership is. So we should not abuse our authority and take it upon us as though we are the owners of that authority. We are just stewards of it. So leaders are accountable to the return of Christ. But the idea of stewardship cuts the other way as well. Those who underemphasize the human authorities in the church underemphasize Jesus' authority because he, as the head of the church, is the one who has ordained human authorities in the church. So to completely rebel against the the established human authorities is actually to rebel against the head, Jesus Christ. We all must submit to Christ, whether we lead or whether we follow. We all submit. Now, in conclusion, I just want to mention a few practical things. The calling of an elder or a deacon is a high calling. It is a great responsibility that should be taken very seriously. We are called to serve God's flock as God's stewards, but we are not the first ones ever created who do not need the gospel. We're not perfect. We are greatly vulnerable to temptation of loving ourselves more than we love to serve the flock of God. Elders and deacons are under the the same pressures that you are under every day. We are under the same, if not worse, spiritual attacks that you face every day. But we sincerely want to shepherd you. And please, if you feel overlooked, let us know. I promise you that if we are not aware of something that's going on in your life, some need, something that needs to be prayed for, it probably is a failure on our part. But I promise you it's not intentional. If you need us, come to us. Reach out to us. I can promise you we will be happy to serve you. Now, if you've sat back thinking this whole time that those old guys with the gray hair Those are the stewards of the church and not me. You're wrong. Uh, All scripture is profitable for everybody, even the qualifications for elders. It is the duty of every one of you who call upon the name of Christ to manage your family well, to not abandon your children. It is your responsibility to manage yourself well, to be disciplined, not arrogant, And it is your responsibility, too, to help protect the church against error. We can't do all that stuff. However, none of us can perform our duty without the Spirit of Christ working in us. We all need the gospel to perform our duties. If you want to be a faithful steward, you must begin and you must end with Christ, not your ability. To do otherwise is to fall into the trap that Paul's warning about here. The legalists who want to subvert the churches at Crete. We have to remember the gospel that tells us that all of our pride, all of our anger, all of our lack of of management, 
our unbelief, our rebellion, our insubordination, all those things were dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we need the gospel. Therefore, we are not faithful stewards through our own efforts. Don't try to be a steward of Christ through the efforts of self. Be a steward of Christ by going to Christ and trusting the spirit of Christ to work it in you. Amen.